Hey everyone, you're listening to the Covenant Grace Church podcast. We are a gospel-centered community on mission with Jesus in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. Thank you for joining us as we journey through the book of Ephesians. Enjoy the message. All right, we're busy preaching as a church through the book of Ephesians. And uh, the subtitle of our series is called Sit, Walk, Stand as we're journeying through this book that forms the framework of this book beginning with being seated with Christ and then walking worthy of the calling to which we've been called and ending with standing firm in the gospel. And so we are journeying through this. And this morning we're in chapter 4. And uh, last week, just by way of reminder, we covered verses 1 through 11, 1 through 10 actually. And I just want to remind you of the, the main point from last week because it was a very important point. And the point was this, is that we as the church... From verses 1 through 6, we are called in verse 3 to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And the big, big idea here is that the unity that God has created is a God initiative. God has done that. We don't create the unity. We maintain the unity of the Spirit. And so we get to enjoy the finished work of what Christ has accomplished for us, and we maintain it by becoming more and more like Jesus, by focusing our lives on this calling. And so he says, I want you to walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And then he gives us this beautiful vision of God. There is one God, one Lord, one body, one spirit. And the emphasis here is that if there is one God, then that is unity. There is one. But then he explains that there is also one Lord and one Father and one Spirit. And so we know that this one God whom we worship is also Trinitarian in his nature. And so we worship as Christians one God who is three persons. And we spoke about that. Don't have time to revisit the doctrine of the Trinity, but you can download it. If, if you need to understand that a little bit better, please go and get that sermon. There's no contradiction there. There is one God who has revealed himself to us in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so there is unity and there is diversity. And this is a beautiful vision for the church because the church is to be both unified and diverse. We can be diverse, church. We can be a different looking people. We can be black and white and young and old and different languages. And we can be one, one in Christ. But then it's further, not only is God one and three, God is also holy. And so there's a vision for purity, unity, diversity, and purity. And, uh, and, and what Paul's doing here is he's, he's giving us a vision of the doctrine of God, and he's showing us how the whole Christian life is centered around who God is. The whole of our Christian life and the whole of our Christian experience is informed from who is God? And when we answer the question, who is God? We find our identity in who God is. And so uh, Ligon Duncan, one of the scholars I follow, he quotes this particular, um, on this particular verse, he says this, and I just, I just wanted to share this with you. I think it's just such a beautiful statement. He says, the flowers of humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance Bloom best in the fertile soil of a heart absorbed with knowing the triune God. 
to the degree that we know him in the unity of his being, in the glory of his persons, to that same degree we will love and serve one another in unity, celebrating our difference, our diversity, in a way that mirrors and reflects the God that we adore. Isn't that beautiful? And so the first few verses are all about unity, but then the next verses are all about diversity. And so Paul moves from the unity of believers to the uniqueness of the believers. And now that might sound strange because some people today in the world today, people are emphasizing uniqueness. Now you're one of a kind. You're very special. And so everyone these days gets awards, don't they? You just get a participation award just for being there. And, and, and so we, we're so afraid of, of, of identifying people as different. And we want to just make everyone look the same. But that's not what the gospel does. The gospel doesn't, it's not bland. It's not, it's not one flat line. We're not all bland and boring. No, we're diverse. We're a different people. And together we can be unified within our diversity. So let's read on. We're going to read on from verse 7. Chapter 4, verse 7 through to verse 16. Paul writes, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He's talking here about Christ's incarnation, him coming to earth, and then his exaltation after his death and resurrection. Verse 10, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The first thing I want to point out to us here is this grace. In verse 7, it says grace was given. And we're going to see that this grace was given for three main things, as we've said, for unity, for diversity, and now in today's passage, for maturity. Grace was given. And the text marvelously moves from a picture of all of us to now 
each of us. Look at what the text says, verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us. And so it moves from the unity of the all to the uniqueness of the one. From all of us to each one of us. Grace was given. And this really strikes at the heart of the gospel. At the heart of Christianity is the story of grace that was given. Not grace that was earned. This is ultimately what defines Christianity. It's not what we do. It's what we've received. The salvation, harking back to chapters 1 and 2, is a grace that we have received. Not something that we've done. And so this grace cannot be earned. It's clearly given. Which means it's free grace. Free, sovereign grace from the Father to the undeserving. Now, the greatest dimension of this grace is that grace is not just an idea, but grace was a person. Grace was Christ himself coming. It was God's self-donation. God coming in the flesh, in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And so God's not only blessing us with grace, he's coming to us himself. He embodies the idea of grace and he comes. Which is why Paul links verses 7 with verses 8. Look at this. But grace was given to each one of us. Look at this. According. How? According to the measure of Christ's gift. That's how grace came. And then he goes on. Therefore it says, and now he's quoting Psalm 68. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, what Paul's doing here is he's actually quoting a story, a narrative out of the story of the Exodus. Psalm 68 was written about the Exodus, about how God came down and rescued the people of Israel from Egypt. Remember the story? And it literally required God's judgment. The ten plagues. And in that sense, God came down. And he led them out of captivity. And in leading them out, he gave them gifts and freedom and land. And Paul's using that picture of the exodus. And he says, there is a, a greater exodus that that points to. And it points to the exodus of Jesus Christ himself. That was a gracious act of God, and so too is God coming himself in the person of his son. But in doing so, he not only descended, but when he ascended, he then gave gifts to the church. Gifts to the church. And so there's a parallel picture here. In the same way as Israel was led out and they received land and gifts, so too the church in Christ is saved and is blessed with gifts. And so Paul uses this picture of Christ descending and ascending to show us that these gifts are rooted in Christ, not in people. These are Christ-centered gifts. The gift of apostle, the gift of prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. In fact, all gifts. And he only lists here four, maybe five. We'll talk about that shortly. But all gifts are Christ-centered gifts. They are not 
individual-centered gifts. Although each one is gifted, the emphasis and the goal of the gift is that we would look to Christ and not to the person. And so these are Christ-centered grace gifts from the Holy Spirit so that we would look to Christ. Now, he, he then unpacks what this grace does. This grace distributes gifts, this saving grace from Jesus. And in distributing gifts, these gifts become means to maturity. Means to unity and maturity. And there are three that are identified in our passage. The first means of grace is gifted leaders. Look again at verse 11. And he gave Jesus, the ascended one, after descending and ascending in his grace, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Here it is, to maturity, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so God's grace gifts for unity and maturity in the church are gifted leaders. God gives to the church teachers. God gives to the church evangelists and pastors and apostles and prophets. Now, when we read the list here, some people conclude there are four main gifts and some conclude there are five main gifts. Some refer to this as the five-fold ministry. Others refer to it as the four-fold ministry. I think that technically, actually, it's four-fold because the last two gifts are one gift. If you look closely, in particular in the Greek original language, there is a definite article before each person is named. It's the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and then there is only one the here, the shepherds and teachers. In other words, the gift there is combined. He's a pastor or a shepherd who teaches. A shepherding teacher, a pastoring teacher. Pastoring and teaching go together. And so God gives these gifts to the church. But here's what I want you to see. These gifts are given to the church not to monopolize ministry, but to multiply ministry. They are not platformed for a show. They are not put on a pedestal to be idolized. Their role is to multiply ministry, not monopolize it. Verse 7 says grace was given to each one of us. So yes, there is a unique grace given to gifted leaders, but actually we all get grace. And we all get grace gifts. And some are called to these ministries, but all of us are called to ministry. Because verse, 13, uh, verse 12 reminds us that the reason for these grace gifted leaders is to what? Equip the saints for the work of ministry. And so it's not actually those grace gifted leaders who are doing all the ministry. No, no, they're equipping the saints and together we all do ministry. 
So well, well done, guys. We're all, we're all in ministry. Some of you have longed to be in ministry. You've always been in ministry as long as you've been serving Christ. Now, one of the questions we need to ask of the text, and I don't want to spend too much time on this because it can get a little technical, is are all these gifts that are listed here still in operation today? And, uh, and I think we would all agree that, yes, evangelism is very important, and that's a gift that the church needs, and pastors, shepherds are very important to the church, and teachers are very important to the church. But what about these apostles and prophets? And, uh, and, and I don't want to go into too much detail, but I just think we need to just log this right up front, that textually, if we just take this text and we apply our minds to this text, the text does tell us in verse 13 that these gifts are for the building up of the body of Christ, verse 13, until, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. And the question that we need to ask is, has that happened yet? And the obvious answer is no, it hasn't happened until we become like Christ. And so these gifts are necessary to the church. So at least textually, we've got a, a pointer here of, of how long these gifts are going to be needed for the church. Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, to mature manhood. However, theologically, when we look at Ephesians 2 and a few other verses, we read in Ephesians 2 verse 20 that the apostles and prophets are part of the foundation of the church. And so we need to be careful here. We need to draw a very important distinction between the apostles and prophets who were part of the foundation of the church and the apostolic and prophetic gift that continues today in the church. Some refer to it as the capital A apostles and the lowercase a apostles. We no longer have the capital A apostles in office in the church today. Those apostles, capital A and capital P prophets, are in the foundation of the church, and we have them in Scripture. They are the foundation on which the church is built with Christ being the cornerstone. And so in a technical sense, we no longer have the office of apostle and prophet, although the gift of apostolic ministry and the gift of prophetic ministry does continue in a non-authoritative sense because our authority is Scripture. Our authority is Scripture alone. But those gifts continue to do what? To build up the body. To build up the body. Now, there's a whole lot more that needs to be said, but here's what I want you to note, and then we'll move on. The key thing about all four of these gifts is this. They are all word-based ministries. They are all focused on proclaiming the gospel. And the result is unity and maturity. Look at verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge. There it is. We need knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. In other words, Paul is here linking unity and maturity to our understanding. The more we know Jesus, the more we will work for unity and maturity amongst the body. And so the strategy, God's strategy 
For unity and maturity is God's word. And now Paul has something to say about that. So firstly, gifted leaders are a means of grace for growth. Secondly, God's word is a crucial means of grace for growth. Look at this, verse 14. So that we may no longer be children. So if the goal is maturity, we need to grow up. So we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried around by every wind of doctrine. By human cunning, human philosophy, cultural narratives, by craftiness in deceitful schemes, from demonic, cultic practices, false religions. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, Christ. And so it's an interesting way of magnifying the importance of truth, isn't it? And the way he wants to magnify the importance of God's word as the means of grace for unity and maturity is firstly to warn us. To warn us that when we neglect God's word, the first problem is we stay like children. We are immature. We are immature And that immaturity can lead to us being fragile, insecure, tossed to and fro, flimsy, weak Christians, tossed to and fro. Oh, the world says that, so I'm going after that. Or then they change their minds and they say that by human cunning. And we become weak when we neglect the means of God's word to strengthen us. Now notice he's, he's identifying here both, both false doctrine and faulty doctrine. And there is a difference. False would be heresy and faulty often leads to heresy, although it's not quite there yet. And I think that in a sense that is more dangerous today. There is some really faulty truth, faulty teaching happening in the church today. That's not quite yet heresy, but it's on its way. And we need to be careful of both. The false doctrine, I think, is easy for most Christians to spot. It's the faulty doctrine that is more subtle. And the point of this, Paul's point, is that it destroys unity. It destroys unity and it destroys Christians because they become weak and they get tossed around. While I was preparing for this, I was reading this, this one article, and this one guy said that he, he came from an Anabaptist background, and, uh, and they, they had both good things in their past and, and a couple of bad things too. But he was saying he was researching some of his family's history, and he came across a document, and in this document, it stated that the, within the Anabaptist church, they had a massive fight. And he carried on reading, and he said the fight boiled down to this. Can you have a mustache by itself, or must it be accompanied by a beard? (laughs) What? And his conclusion was, this is what happens when we lose sight of good doctrine. Oh, my word. We can get caught up in nonsense. 
And we get tossed to and fro. Now the point, he's saying, don't be like babies. No longer children. I don't want you to be like children. And so the analogy is very clear, isn't it? Little babies, little, little babies, they can't crawl or walk yet, right? And so they keep falling over, don't they? And so they need to have some help. They need to be supported or they're going to fall over and hurt themselves. And he's saying God's word does that. God's word is our support structure. But not only that, what else do babies do? They just pick up anything, don't they? And they put it in their mouths. I I think we caught our son once in our back garden with dog poo (laughs) in his mouth. I mean, kids, that's the danger, right? The danger is that babies, children, just put anything in their mouths. And and we can't be like that as Christians. We need to be discerning. And the only way we can be discerning about what we feed ourselves is if we're in and under God's word. And then he says that we need to speak this truth in love. It's truth and love, church. The the doctrine that brings glory to God, the truth that brings glory to God is truth and love. Not just hard truth, but truth and love. And not just love that's sloppy with no truth. No, it's love with truth. It's both together. Speak the truth in love. So then the third means of grace. We've got gifted leaders. We've got... God's word, and then Christ's body. Look at verse 16. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, just please stick with me here. We, 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 we easily understand that God's given to the church gifted leaders and that God's given to the church his word as a means of grace. But do we really believe that the church is a means of grace for our good? Because that's what he's arguing for here. He is arguing that from the whole body... And we're just a part, we're an expression here at Covenant Grace. But together the whole church is joined and held together when it's working properly, which means there's a responsibility not on on the pastors, the gifted leaders, but on the members. Makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. In other words, I think what Paul's arguing here for is that when we meet and engage with the church, we are meeting and engaging with Jesus. Let me say that again. When you come to church, when you meet with other Christians, it's as if you are meeting with Jesus. Because we are his body. We are mystically his body. 
We are the body of Christ. And so when you need to be comforted, Christ will comfort you, but often through a member. And when you need to be looked after, Christ will comfort you, and we will look after you, and it will often be through another church member. And when you need to be corrected, Christ will correct you through the preaching of God's word or through the fellowship of a brother alongside you. Look at what the text is saying. Who's causing the body to be built up in love? And the text's answer is, it's building itself up. Look at it. Makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The, The point he's making is that it's you and I, because we are joined to Christ, that we are able to build each other up. And so when we encounter one another and when we partner with one another and when we engage with one another and when we serve one another, we are encountering Christ. And when we do the opposite, we are neglecting Christ. When we neglect the church, when we neglect serving each other, when we neglect comforting one another, when we neglect correcting one another, we are neglecting Christ. And so we are called to be together. Every one of you is a joint. Every one of you is a part. And everyone has a a role to play. So that the body builds itself up in love. And then when the world sees the church, hopefully it sees Christ. That's the goal. And so I think we've got a long way to go. If the the people out there had had to measure our growth, our maturity, do they see Christ amongst us? Do they see Jesus as we are partnering together as a body? That's our prayer. I want to end with this illustration. The illustration is of a church as an orchestra, not a bus. If we use the church as a bus as an illustration, then the congregation are simply passengers and the pastor is the driver, right? So this is a nice big bus, and you guys are all seated. By the way, you're always in the same seats on the bus. Um, but anyway, well, you know, as long as the bus driver's you know, taking us, we're, we're just happily to, to sit and just be taken along for the ride, and, uh, and that's what it can be like. And some of the passengers may occasionally help to clean up and maintain the bus, um, but you know, they're not obligated to, you know, so you know, they're happy to just get on and off and not really worry about the bus at all, um, as long as they get to where they're meant to be going, I guess. Um, but they all appreciate good driving, don't they? I think they really appreciate, you know, the driver sticking to, to the road and uh, making sure he's not taking some detours. Um, and, and strangely, some passengers on the bus never talk to other passengers. It just seems to be that way, while others are maybe perhaps wondering, I wish that passenger would actually get off at the next stop. (laughs) And so sadly, this could be a picture of the church, 
and it shouldn't be. The picture of the church is not passengers on a bus. The picture is rather like an orchestra, where the pastor is like the conductor, and he's helping the church to play in tune. But each member is playing. Each member is participating. And yes, the conductor is helping them understand the score so that they play the right notes at the right time. And the score, of course, is the Word of God. And although the conductor is the preacher, the whole congregation is responsible for what it sounds like. The conductor can't bring the sound. It's as each part plays. And as each part is engaged. And as each part responds. That the sound becomes beautiful. And so, yes, there is a conductor, and there are gifted leaders, and there is a score, there is God's word. But without the orchestra, there is no church. But each of us need to play our part in order to bring God glory. Amen? Let's be an orchestra, not a bus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us. Father, we thank you that you have spoken this morning to us by your Spirit. And I pray that you would shape us, Lord, into a community that learns how to build itself up. Because every part is playing, every part is contributing. And so Christ is encountered. The living Christ is encountered through the body. Thank you, Lord, for this vision of a mature church. And I pray that we would know you more, love you more, encounter you more, serve you more. Lord, that we would learn to put aside our differences that we'd watch what we put in our mouths, and that we would feast on truth, and that we'd love one another, that the world would know that we are your disciples. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.